welcome to this special Innovation Forum webinar. Today, we are going to case study the Kasagao Corridor Red Plus project in Kenya and hear from project managers and leaders of community groups on the ground. The Kasagao Corridor project protects over 200,000 hectares of dryland forest, an important ecosystem with rich biodiversity. It is, for example, critically important to more than 2,000 wild elephants that use the corridor as a safe passage and dispersal area. Located between the Tsavo East and Tsavo West National Parks, the region serves as a vital corridor for more than 300 species of wildlife. The project supports social programs that impact around 120,000 local people and provides local communities with long-term jobs that have replaced unsustainable and destructive sources of income, such as poaching, subsistence agriculture, and illegal tree harvesting. The project was started in 1998 by Wildlife Works, an organization initially focused on solving human-wildlife conflict that has evolved to becoming a leading Red Plus program development and management company. The project uses the emerging marketplace for Red Plus carbon offsets to provide funds that enable the ongoing work to protect threatened forests and wildlife while supporting sustainable development for the local community. In other words, it's a market-driven solution to stop deforestation, protect wildlife and improve local livelihoods. In 2011, the project was successfully validated and verified under the Verified Carbon Standard and the Climate, Community and Biodiversity Standard. It was then the world's first Red Plus project to receive issuance of carbon credits and also the first Verified Carbon Standard Red Plus mega project in that it will result in the avoidance of over 1.5 million tonnes of emissions per year for 30 years. And the market for such offsets is rapidly growing. A new report from Ecosystem Marketplace predicts it will top $1 billion in 2021 increasing nearly 60% year on year. But this is still small in comparison to what will be necessary as the global economy decarbonizes. The Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets predicts that voluntary action through the carbon markets will lead to increase 15-fold by 2030 and 100-fold by 2050 from 2020 levels. To talk about how the project works and the impact it has made in local communities, I am delighted to be joined by Lenjo Mandoy, Community Relations Manager, George Tumbi, Agribusiness and Forestry Manager, Seraphine Charo, Carbon Committee Representative, and Mercy Ngoroya, Founder of an Environmental Women's Group, and Eric Sagwe, who is the Head Ranger. And our webinar today is supported by Everland. Many thanks to the Everland and Wildlife Works teams for helping to convene our panel and to Innovation Forum's Anita Thompson. Let me turn to our panel in Kenya. A very, very warm welcome to you all. Lenjo, perhaps I can turn to you first. From your perspective, Lenjo, please give a brief overview of the project and its aims. The aim of Red Plus project in Kenya was to reduce the impact of climate change through avoided deforestation and reduce emissions of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The drivers of deforestation are primarily charcoal production and slash and burn agriculture. The community used to depend on these activities as well as bushmeat poaching. But these activities are slowing down at the moment since the start of the Red Plus project. The project engages communities through sensitization and increased access to alternative livelihoods. Community consent must be really important in the project. Tell me a little bit more about how that works. There's a process called free prior informed consent. This means giving information to the communities and getting consent from the community landowners before the project is started. All stakeholders must be involved from the, big, from the beginning so that they understand how the project works and the benefits that are derived from the project. The process, it starts from introducing the project to the national and county government, and the national government is represented by the chief 
and assistant chief, then the local representatives. Then the second process is to engage the landowner communities and wider community leadership. This will include religious leaders, women leaders, youth leaders, people living with disabilities, and council of elders. We also had wider community meetings. In Kenya, we call them community barazas, and these are done in the villages. We also do some meetings and awareness to the schools. We have continuous engagement in order to keep the awareness consistent. So we do this through group discussions, using film shows, sports for the youth, workshops and seminars to different groups, including women and the youth. Tell me a bit about the governance structure of the project. Community funds are received through Wildlife Works Carbon Trusts. And under the trust, there's six different community locational carbon committees, one committee in each of the areas. This committee is elected after every two years, and membership consists of seven to nine members. The roles of the LCC, or the Locational Carbon Committee, includes receiving proposals from the community, making decisions on where money can be spent, and also deciding which projects can be done. Again, they also assist in doing sensitization to the community. We also do have subcommittees like bursary committee. This committee oversees bursary fund. They make sure that there's fair distribution to the needy students within the community. And then there's a community-based organization and community coordination offices. Both of these offices oversee implementation of the project after the LCC have made decision on where to spend the money. All activities are guided by the standard operating procedure that is made by all the stakeholders and is reviewed annually to exclude what doesn't work and to include what can work. It addresses benefit sharing mechanisms among all stakeholders and highlights monitoring and evaluation mechanisms. Let me turn now to George. Lenjo mentioned some of the drivers of deforestation in your location. Could you talk a little bit more about what they are and some of the alternative activities that you've developed that preserve the forests? We have deforestation and degradation in our location, driven by what he has said, illegal logging for charcoal, fuel, wood production, unsustainable subsistent agriculture, which is largely slash, burn, shift, including illegal grazing and overstocking. There is an element also of mining, construction, and all these are fueled by a lack of opportunity by the communities. It's a place that is semi-arid. Temperatures go very high. Currently, we are experiencing a heat wave where temperatures are going up to above 39 degrees. The rain is very little, so hardly 400. And, you know, a few years we've had rain, 30% of the annual rain coming in two days. So you can imagine there is uh, flash floods and a lot of destruction. The place is hilly with rock mountains. It's a place that is difficult for the community. It's also a hotspot area for human-wildlife conflict. So Wildlife Works is here to mitigate, to help both the community and the forest. Before Wildlife Works, it was a lose-lose situation for the environment and also for the community. It was a very big conflict, which we are trying to address. What has different, a multifaceted approach to resolving these issues. My colleague Eric will explain. He does the enforcement. That is one side. The other side of it is that we try to provide those lacking opportunities for the community in a number of ways. One of the ways is direct employment of community members. We have departments here. We have several departments. We have the department which I head, which is agribusiness and forestry. We have a fully-fledged workshop with mechanics and technicians of different expertise. 
we have our research team, we have our administrators, we have an EPZ a garment factory. Those people employed here couldn't be also harming the forest because they are busy working, they are gaining an income. Currently, we have 350 staff, all of us. It may not sound like a very big number, but it helps a lot because our researchers, we have a social scientist that visits homesteads, and he has told us that his finding is that one job here helps at least 15 people. It has a ripple effect. And out of the 200,000, I think we get, if you multiply 350 by 15, which is very direct, we are helping a lot of people. To address these people employed, other than that, we also train community and support alternative income generating projects like tree nurseries where we support them and we also one of their customers. We have also supported in conjunction with our partners, uh, agribusiness projects out in the community. There are women groups that are doing handmade art crafts and many other income generating projects. That means people are also earning an income as an alternative to go into the forest because the only resource they have, people here have here is the forest and the animals that live in the forest. Those are two ways in which we mitigate. We also recognize the illegal logging and the poor agricultural practices as a serious problem. Charcoal burning is a major economic activity here. It is done in a very traditional way. I will start by explaining how it has been. Normally, people will cut the entire tree. We hear the power saws and the axes, the trees come down. The entire tree is burnt into charcoal. But what we are training the community to do through the charcoal producers' associations is to do, because we are not telling them they will never do their business, but they have to do it in a sustainable manner. We are teaching the community through the Charcoal Producers Association how to do it in a sustainable manner to produce eco-charcoal. So eco-charcoal concept of Kasigao Red Plus project is where you don't cut the whole tree. You just prune the tips of the tree and you leave the tree intact doing what trees do for all of us and make charcoal. The trees will sprout again and they continue living. So that is, this is what the alternative we are proposing to people. And we are also supporting makers of briquettes that they learn at our eco-factory as another alternative source of income. Unsustainable subsistence agriculture is a big problem too. Traditionally, the community is farming, but like I said, the place is semi-arid, so even chances of growing a successful crop is very low. If I could describe how it was before we started and how it still is and what we are fighting, traditionally, you'll find somebody has moved from where they were doing some agriculture and identified a place in the forest. They cut the trees, they do slash and burn, then they plow and the soil is left loose. And so when the agents of erosion come, which is water, wind, the soil is taken away. So the soil left is bare. If you fly our project now, it's very bare everywhere. And this is repeated year in, year out. So the solution that we are offering is conservation agriculture, where community integrate conservation aspects with the crop production. So the first thing we tell them is stop deforestation, poor agricultural practices, stop slash and burning, minimize plowing, substitute with restorative agricultural techniques and apply soil control measures. So we train the community on conservation agriculture. We have a unit here that demonstrates minimum use of uh, water, for example, so that they can produce more per unit area using the little rain that comes their way. Crop rotation, shade the crop from direct sun, integrate trees with cropping, which is agroforestry, mulching, cover crops, plant climate-suited varieties, early planting, planting at the correct depth, and applying soil erosion techniques.
Other than that, we're also training the, teaching the community about climate change, the threat it poses to the earth and its dwellers. The certification is, is a serious threat. We also tell them what the drivers of uh, climate change are and the mitigation measures that we are taking and what they can even do as, as individuals. Let me turn to Seraphine now. What's the process of choosing the projects that receive funding? The process is very participatory and, as Lejo said, follows the laydown procedures called the standard operation procedure. The committee that is made of elected community representatives does receive a form that is called a concept note. This is as per a felt need from a community. For example, they feel that they need some water tank somewhere, they will fill a concept form. And all the forms then taken over to the committee. The committee is able to get from the form the goals of the project, the activities that are going to be undertaken, and a possible budget. So that at that level, the committee is able to tell, depending on the funds that are available from the carbon credit, we are able to tell whether we can be able to fund that project. We also, from the activities, we can be able to say whether the project is viable in terms of conservation. The committee then makes a list of all the applications per each village. And after that, we do make uh, public barazas. Public barazas are village meetings that are organized through the administration so that they can be able to prioritize amongst the projects that they had chosen or they had applied for to the committee. So we join them and through a guided discussion, they are able to prioritize the projects they had applied for. Most of the times, the projects are very many because the community needs also very high. Depending on the budget or the amounts of money that are available, we help the villages and the villagers to be able to measure from the highest need to the lowest. And we make a list of every village according to the applications that they had made and the list of priorities. Once we get the list of priorities from the communities, we are able to sit again as a committee, look at the money that is provided for from the carbon credit, and be able to say the number of projects that can be undertaken at that particular time. So we again look at the community priorities. We are able to say, okay, now we can be able to undertake community proposal number one and two, and another community maybe only number one because maybe their project is a bit high, we make sure that as a committee, most of the areas of the communities and their needs are charged by this fund. Once we get the priority list and we know the number of projects that we are able to implement depending on the money, then the technical team does take that for project implementation. I would like to say that the community is involved at all stages. They even form their project management committee which from the villages, they are able to oversee the implementation of their projects, whether they will be able to meet the needs as desired at application stage. This process is very participatory from the village level, by the communities from their felt needs and by the committee. And this participation is very important because it gives the community a sense of ownership of the project. And therefore, they are able then to be able to take care of the project after it is completed because it needs to be sustainable. It needs to take a good life long and needs to do what it was intended for and therefore serve the community well.
So this is the process that we go through as a committee to make sure that the community participates fully. And finally, the project, when it is handed over to them, they are able to take care of it and make sure that it serves them as they had requested. What sort of projects do you fund? These projects, for example, the Basare, which is money that is given to poor kids to be able to get through their education, whereas they could not if they were not funded, and therefore we get an education community and poverty reduction through job creation. We also have projects that support schools' infrastructure, like construction of classrooms, construction of laboratories, staff rooms, and even renovation of some schools that have been dilapidated, also toilets. There are also water projects like water pans, water tanks that are able to supply water to the communities and help in the need of water. Water is life and the projects mostly done by this fund are very helpful to the community and especially women because women are the ones that have this struggle of looking for water. So their time is saved for other chores. And the women are always happy. At least they don't have to get tired like that. Other projects may involve uh, even training for women empowerment to make sure that they are well informed in terms of conservation and even in leadership in their groups. There are various and varied uh, ways that this project uh, helps the community. Let me turn now to Mercy. You're a leader of women's environmental group. Can you give us a bit of insight as to how things have changed for your community? What was it like before the project started, for example? When carbon came, in this community, we had a lot of problems, like schools. Most of the students could sit down. The classes were not enough. They could sit just under trees, and the teachers could teach just under the tree. The classrooms were not enough. We did not have enough toilets. Even students used to go to the same toilets with the teachers because there were no enough toilets. The classrooms, most of the other classrooms were not cemented. Some of them were just, had rough cars. Students used to get jiggers and they used to get sick most of the time. There was no good education. The performance of school was very low because they were not comfortable. They could even go to school late. And also they go and sit outside, especially when it's raining. The students could not learn well. Some could just go to the corridors whereby the classes are of iron sheets and stay there. So they used to miss the classes because there were no enough classes. Also water, there was no water around. And even the students could carry water from their homes to school because there was no drinking water around. They could just come with bottles with water. They could not even wash their hands well. So on the health sector, the, most of the students, they were sick and they were not happy. So education level, when they do their exams, they were not doing well. They used to get low marks. Also women around, they had problems of water. Women could walk for a long distance, like 10 kilometers to go and look for water. They could even, some of the students could leave school and accompany their mothers to go and look for water. So they could not go to school and that's why they failed their exams. Also women did not have any trainings, so they could only go and look for firewood, they could go and look for water and also graze the kettle. They didn't have any experience of life because most of the women were not educated. Life was very hard here. 
and most of the people are not getting even women could not even get employed anywhere. That was then. Perhaps you can tell me a bit more about where we are now. How has the project helped your community? When Carbon came, we were very happy. Students started with the students who were doing well, the vulnerable children, because most of the vulnerable children, when they did their exams, they could not get school fees because this is a semi-arid area. Most of the times we, don't, we planned, but we don't get anything. Over The vulnerable children didn't go to school. And when the carbon came, they could get the bursaries. They could go to secondary school. After secondary school, they could even go to college because they started now receiving the bursary. And the education changed completely. We are very, very happy because most of them are just even employed around here, around Wildlife Works. Others have got work. In different companies, life is not the same. It is different. Also, we are happy because after getting these uh, bursaries and the students are doing well, we are happy because we have one of the students who did very well. And we have a pilot in our community. We are very proud because they have been supported and they have been trained and they, they've got the, the work and now is giving back to the community. On the side of women, women have been trained through Hadithi Craft, Hadithi CBO, and now they are making very nice baskets. They are trained because of poverty. There is no poverty now anymore. It's decreasing because before they couldn't make any baskets. Nowadays, they can sell the baskets, help their children. They pay school fees. And also, they are making even kitchen gardens because they are trained through Hadithi. They can make their kitchen gardens whereby we have no malnutrition in the community. We have the kitchen gardens whereby we can get good vegetables and our community is feeding well. So most of the groups make those gardens and they are doing very well. And also women are employed. They are employed in different places like also and they are doing their own businesses. Most of them have started small shops. And they are happy and they are selling baskets and they are weaving. So women are very happy. Life has really changed, although we have a long way to go. So we need also to continue doing whatever we are doing. But at least women now can do something. It's not like before. Thank you so much, Mercy. That's fantastic insight as to how things have changed since the project started. Eric, you are head ranger, obviously playing a vital role in ensuring the project's success. What do you and your colleagues do to protect the forests and work with the local community? So Wildlife Works rangers use various modes to make sure that the forest and wildlife are protected. We do patrolling. We provide security for wildlife within the project area. We protect the natural resources. We carry out biodiversity monitoring for just measuring the impact. As part of our work, we also do education awareness to engaging local communities in conservation. We also do respond to human wildlife conflicts cases. We enforce rules and regulations in our area of operation. We also conduct investigation and make fiscal arrests if needed. Sometimes we carry out firefighting as well as response units to the members of the community. Sometimes wildlife works rangers do search and rescue mission the area where we are operating is fast, and sometimes members of the community have been losing uh, their livestock, and they have been using the project area as a shortcut to pass those illegal livestock. So we have been applying security within the area. 
All of this we do in cooperation with other security partners, such as the Kenya Wildlife Service, which is our mother, and also we incorporate our other conservation partners, such as the Sheldricks uh, Wildlife Trust, especially for veterinary work, and the Savo Trust and the Save the Elephants. Perhaps give some insight into challenges you faced before the project. Before the project, some of the challenges we faced were that the rate of poaching was very, very high. We had a lack of some resources with a huge area to efficiently monitor. There were also uncontrolled entry points with a lot of illegal movements and illegal activities. How have things changed? Yeah, currently, we have seen a drastic reduction on commercial poaching and habitat destruction cases. We have more ground and air teams available to do canning of all the area within a very short time. We have more resources for ranger equipment and for the ranger training. Fortunately, we have permanent response unit to human wildlife conflict. We also have improved communication and engagement with the members of the community. And we have improved joint operations and patrols with other security organs. So that's what we have as of now. And what are your hopes for going forwards? The hopes we have for the future is continuous improvement of ranger equipment and the ranger training, improving accessibility to areas with the poor road network, as you understand, in the bush, from one point to another point. If we don't have roads, the accessibility to get into the incident is very, very difficult. Without proper road network, we cannot manage. And also, Rastri is uh, the enhanced community engagement and the outreach programs with my brother, Lenjo. One thing I was fascinated to learn about your ranger service is that you are all unarmed, aren't you? You don't carry firearms, that's correct, isn't it? Yes, I operate a team which is not armed. Yeah, the rangers that we have in Wildlife Works, most of them, they emanate from the community, the surrounding villages within the project area. These men and women, Actually, they give a lot of sacrifice to nature. When they are doing their patrols, they face a lot of things. And the reason as to why we are not harming our rangers is one. Since they emanate from the local community, when you give them arms, we are going to lose a lot of information from the members of the community because we depend the members of the community to give us information on our daily programs. Number two, if we harm our rangers, it means that we are not sincere. Because, for number one, when you carry harms, you distance yourself from the members of the community. Number two, if you are harmed and you are doing your normal patrols within uh, the project area, it means that the culprits who will be coming in will be more harmed than you. And the danger of having harms, sometimes it might lead to a lot of deaths to our department that we don't want. Since now that we are operating within the members of the community and they know we are not harmed, we are not using any force to them because the project's primary uh, thing is we are not supposed to use force to the members of the community. All we are supposed to do is to work amicably with the members of the community with understanding that the project actually is supposed to cater for the members of the community more. Thank you very much, everybody, for your questions. And we'll now try to get through as many of them as we can in the rest of our time. I wonder if I lend you a question to you. A number of our questions have centred on the theme of what do you think might be easy to replicate from your project elsewhere in Kenya and in Africa and the wider world? What is it that you think is a thing that can be replicated and allow the project you have here 
to be successfully reproduced elsewhere. Like the standard operating procedure we have is really working for us because it stipulates the roles of each committee, the roles of the trusts, and the roles of other stakeholders. So if that can be replicated in other areas, I think that will work very well. On the SOP, we do have transparency whereby we have notice boards in each location area whereby all the expenditures and all the audit reports goes to the notice board so that everyone can see how much has been spent on projects, how much has been spent on bursary. Even when it comes to bursary beneficiaries, we do have a list of those who benefited and those who didn't benefit and the reasons why. So that list should go to the notice board so that everyone knows why a certain student didn't get the bursary. Same is for the projects as well. When the community applies for projects and after the Locational Carbon Committee sits to evaluate the proposals, there's a list of the projects that have been accepted and the projects that have not been accepted. So such lists should go to the notice board so that everyone can see the reasons why their project was not accepted and why the other was accepted. In the same locational community areas, we do have suggestion boxes in public places. So these suggestion boxes, every community member is allowed to put their suggestions, their opinions, and maybe even appreciation. We normally open this suggestion box after every one month to see what the communities have suggested in those boxes. And then it is decided by the committee. You've answered a number of our questions already, but so thanks very much indeed, Len Joe. One question I do want to put to you. Someone asked about the percentage of the carbon credit revenue reaches communities. Can you give us an example of how much went, say, last year or in a particular year, so we get an idea of how the money transfers from the sales of the carbon credits through to the community? Yeah, with that one, it depends with the kind of profit we have. For example, when we receive carbon revenue, first priority is given to the, co- to the landowners. And then the second priority is uh, project expenses. Like we have to make sure that our rangers are paid, the vehicles are in good conditions, roads in the sanctuaries are well maintained. And then after removing those, those expenses, the remaining amount of money is profit. So it depends on how much profit we have and how much sales were there. So if we have a lot of profit, then a lot of money will go to the community. For example, last year we had about 17.5 million in each locational carbon committee. And I guess the expenses that you refer to there are essential for preserving the forests. So those expenses maintain the forest, preserve the biodiversity as well. It's all an important part of the project. Mercy, Mama Mercy, there was a, a question come through for you. Our questioner was asking, from your community, how aware are they about the carbon market and the methodology that allows the funds to come to the community? The community know because we have the meetings in the community whereby the leaders of the government call the meetings and all the community around, they are told what is happening by the staff and by the committee. Every member of the community understands. And if they don't understand, they ask questions and they are answered. So they know what is happening. George, I wonder if I could put a question to you. Our questioner asks a couple of things. First of all, was around use of technology. I just wondered in your work, in your projects, what's the role of digital technology? How much do you use technology in your work? What's the role of technology? We are still developing systems. We are not very old in the business here, but there are some technologies that we use already, like, for example, water conservation technologies, use of drip irrigation, proper monitoring of how much water we are using for where we have demonstrations. 
but it, it's not very much developed. We keep our data, which shows that there is improvement in all that we do. But so far, where we have uh, used technology is in areas of water conservation and monitoring the, of the soil moisture levels so that we know whether we are retaining some of the rain that comes. Because the purpose of the conservation agriculture is to retain as much water in the soil upslope rather than losing it by flushing floods. Another question we have, a question I asked about any success with biogas as an alternative to charcoal. Is that something that you've investigated or considered? Yeah, that's something that we've done a proposal. It's in the pipeline. So there's something that we're going to be starting sometime either by the end of this year or early next year. Question for Eric regarding the security aspects of the project. How do you go about ensuring that the elements of the previously poaching, the elements of legal deforestation, what are the techniques that help you to counter these now? The project is a half a million acres. So what we have done as rangers, I have eight base stations inside the project area. And on that, we have some small substations whereby it contains three to four men. What we have done is to check on the areas whereby we have a lot of cases, especially on habitat destruction and on the poaching areas. We are doing consistent patrols on those areas and we have erected some small camps there. And another thing that we are doing just to make sure that poaching and habitat destruction has gone down is by the use of members of the community a lot in terms of getting information from them. So we have informers light from the community. As I said, we are not harmed. The reason as why we are not harmed is for us to get very close to the members of the community in terms of getting the information on what is happening outside there so that when we do our security operations inside the project area, we are very, very much prepared. Another method we are using, we are using camera traps. We have put these camera traps to the areas whereby we feel the poachers are using. The camera traps, we are not only using them for security purposes only. We are using them also for monitoring animals for the biodiversity aspect. So we are using quite a lot of things to make sure that the security of the project is well maintained. And another thing is the physical patrols that we normally do. We use our men and ladies who are employed in wildlife works to do daily monitoring within the project area. We are using ground teams and we also have air patrols the information actually gotten from each section is quickly shared and it's quickly acted upon. So that's the reason as why the issue of habitat destruction and the poaching has gone down. Jennifer, perhaps I could put a question to you. Several questions around structures of the funding. As Lindjo highlighted, the amounts of funding you get from one year to the other fluctuate. Is there a method you have of ensuring continued funding for projects that are already ongoing? How do you allocate the resources, given that they do fluctuate depending on other factors? Well, the projects that are ongoing are already ongoing. Once a project is handed over to the community, they are in charge of how to sustainably operate that project. So they form a project management committee. If there is any need for, for example, renovations or new additions, they would either request for funds or they are able to contribute as a community for as a part of their contribution. Otherwise, we are very keen on the projects that we are going to undertake at a particular period because of the amount of funds that is available. So we sit with the technical committee and they're able to say, okay, you can only do this much because this is what is available to make sure that the projects that are done 
are complete and working by the time we spend the amount of money. So we are keen on that. Lenjo, perhaps I could turn to you. A number of questions talking about the scaling of projects, particularly thinking in terms of climate change and the climate crisis. What plans are there, if any, for expanding your project? Or is it at its for the extent or other places in Kenya you think that the similar projects could operate? Actually, we need some of our community members which are not in the project area have been coming to us. The neighboring communities have been asking us if we can include their forests into the project so that they can also benefit from the project. So what I think maybe going forward, it's good to include the other forest areas which are not in the project areas so that the other community members which are not getting benefits can also get benefits for the project. Question for Eric. You mentioned that because of the resources are coming to you, you've been able to expand the number of rangers and everything else. Is there any element that you're now better funded perhaps than your neighbouring national park rangers are? And how do you resolve any potential conflicts there because you have the source of funding that other rangers don't have? Let me go straight to human wildlife conflict cases. We have two permanent teams that are working on the issue of human wildlife conflict. What we normally do, we have specified those areas which are badly affected within the project area and the areas whereby actually, you know, the issue of human wildlife conflict is supposed to be conducted by the Kenya Wildlife Service, an entity which is manned by the government. But simply because of the resources, they have limited resources. So that's why we are chipping in as Wildlife Works to help the members of the community because we can to help them mitigate the problem of human wildlife conflict. That is the areas actually we are doing a lot of our effort. We are putting a lot of effort there. We're coming towards the end of our time. I'd like to put a question to everybody. And it's really thinking about the future. We've heard lots of information over the past hour or so about the impact on the community and the benefits for the forest and the biodiversity. I just wondered for everybody, what are their hopes for the future? And how do they want the project to continue or, to, or their hopes for the future of the project? Lenjo, let me turn to you first. Yeah, my hopes for the future, I'm hoping that this Red Plus project continues and the voluntary buyers continues buying, and also we get the mode of marketing. There's a voluntary market, and there's the other market which you are forced to buy carbon credits. That market can start, then I think we are going to get more money, whereby more communities can benefit a lot. And also, I'm hoping that we will include more forests in the near future, so that many people can get benefits. And also, you have a hope that Manchester United wins the Champions League. It might happen as well. Thank you, Lenjo. Eric, what are your hopes for the future? First of all, Ian, is a long leave to the project. Number two, I need more puts on the ground. Currently, I'm at 92 ranges within covering the area of half a million acres. So if I get more personnel, I will distribute my teams to all the corners. And the issue of habitat destruction, the issue of poaching, the issue of illegal movement within the project area will go down completely. So mine is to get more personnel. When I'm seeking for more personnel, it means somebody somewhere within the project area is going to get a job. So I need more rangers so that my work can be efficient. Quick question to you, George. What's your hope for the future? You know, deforestation is uh, something that has been going for a very, very long time, much, much longer than wildlife works has been here. We sunk very, very deep. So the problem is, is enormous. So for the time that the project has been here, we can actually see a big change. But compared to the period that people have been doing destruction, and the magnitude of destruction, we can say we have started well, but we have only just started. We can see a lot of benefits with the community. This needs to continue much, much longer. 
and we are hoping that we can get more and more partners, more and more people using to offset their carbon print so that the project can be able to finance more and more projects. The population is still increasing. It is working against uh, a lot of pressure. People are increasing, no other opportunities. It's getting drier and drier. We have not been able to reach everybody. So there are certain projects that we have been discussing in the management here that we would like to implement. It all depends on how much funding we can be able to put in the ground. And thank you very much for our partners so far. Without them, there was nothing we'd have done. And I hope that more and more people come on board so that we can help this community. Serafine, same question to you. What are your hopes for the future? Let me say that this community is poor in terms of their location and climate. Again, as a committee, we always have very big limitation as to further requests. We may find ourselves, for example, just doing priority number one, and we leave three, four, and five, for example. That means that the needs are very high, and uh, we are not able to sustain or to get in enough to be able to fund the project. So my wish is that more money could be allocated to this committee so that the community can get further help. And, and Mercy, last word to you. What are your hopes for the future for the budget and for your community? I'm just wishing the people who are going to join buying the credit to be on our side because we have new mothers who want to train, who have not trained. We need more women to train so that they can do good for the community. We need more bursaries because the community is growing and more children are being born. So we still need this uh, project to continue. And we'll be happy when we get more bursary and uh, students go to school and everybody does well. And there are also women in the groups to do well in their group. Sometimes when they ask for these bursaries, the women need to be supported in their groups so that they can also do their agriculture because they don't have enough water tanks and they would like to expand the kitchen gardens. So we'll be happy when this project continues for the remaining years and do well. Long live carbon. Thank you. Thank you, Mercy. Thank you very much indeed. Very many thanks to our panel in Kenya. It's been a real privilege for me and the Innovation Forum team to be with you all today. Thank you to the Wildlife Works team for their help and for Everland for their help in supporting this webinar. Innovation Forum is going to be publishing a series of pieces of content about the carbon markets and the role of Red Plus over the coming months, so do look out for them. But for now, from the UK and from Kenya, thank you very much for your company over the past hour and goodbye.